I'm proud to be a Jew, but that's way too Jewish for me. <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Shirley Resick Wachtel, author of A Castle in Brooklyn. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish Radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom and Chagurim Sameach, a happy seventh day of Hanukkah. We tend to think of Hanukkah as occurring all at night, and most of its festivities do take place after dark. But the actual holiday continues each day as well, and it's perfectly acceptable to light candles during the day of Hanukkah too, especially if you forgot to do it the night before. After all, the great mitzvah is Pirsomet Hanes, publicizing the miracle of Hanukkah, and you can do that in the daytime. And if you haven't yet had your fill of latkes, sufganiyot, and chocolate gelt, I probably gained five pounds since last Sunday. It's more than acceptable to continue to enjoy those two. Hanukkah is the ultimate festival of religious freedom. And I would be remiss if I didn't note that in addition to the way it allows us to revel in our ability to be proudly Jewish, it also should remind us that our ancestors fought this great fight to prevent total Jewish assimilation into a dominant culture. Interestingly, that Greek culture included a lot of elements you can find at your local Jewish community center. Athletics, focus on the body, art, theater, public speaking, musical performances. While there's certainly nothing wrong with any of that, our own synagogue, Congregation Beit Simcha, offers a lot of that too. The absence of religious commitment and practice and an ethical structure underlying it all undercuts these otherwise enjoyable parts of life. For Jews, health of body and stimulation of the mind need to be married to spiritual health and religious and moral commitment in order to live a life of meaning and virtue. If we take anything unique from Hanukkah this year, it should be this. Dedication is the hallmark of this holiday, and I don't mean a Hallmark movie, and dedication to both personal, moral, and spiritual health is just as important, if not more important, than dedication to physical fitness. To play us in this morning for Hanukkah, here's a Hanukkah parody from 613. It's their version of West Side Story for the Festival of Lights and Dedication. Candles were lighting on Hanukkah Blessings reciting on Hanukkah Fried foods were biting on Hanukkah Family uniting on Hanukkah I made a clay dreidel to spin Why does it only land on shin? Sufgani, you're with my family I'll take a latke if you please Ba-da. 
613's version of West Side Story for Hanukkah, celebrating our seventh day today and our final night, eighth night tonight. Our guest on Two Jewish this morning is Shirley Russick Wachtel, author of a fine new book, A Castle in Brooklyn. Meet her when we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish our guests this morning. Shirley Russick Wachtel is the author of a new book, A Castle in Brooklyn. Um, a really elegant and valuable story. Um, good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So this is your first novel, and I always like to ask debut novelists, um, what prompted you to to lose your mind and write a novel? That's probably the most generous way I can put it. Well, it's uh, it's not really a prompting, but rather just um, an urge that I've had all my life, a necessity, if you will, um, that I just, I just had to write. And so I've written a number of novels, but this is my first one published. Mazel tov, I have to say. Thank you. It's, it's been a long time in coming, and I'm, I'm really thrilled. Um, it's uh, like all, it, it, most of what I write is, has to do with family, um, because 
you know, that's, I think that's what's most important to me. And so I like to reflect um, the family that, that I, I have known all my life, but also other families as well in my writing. So uh, I, I deduce from your accent that you might be from New York area. <laughs> Uh, and yet the story is split between, I know it's called a castle in Brooklyn, but it's really split between Minnesota and New York. Tell us about that. Well, I was born in Brooklyn, obviously. Um, I don't detect an accent, but for some reason other people... I don't know why people say this. It's really unfair. So, you know, I spent many years in Brooklyn, and so I, in many ways, even though I live in New Jersey now, I consider that home. And um, as far as Minnesota, um, that took a bit of research. I've actually never been to Minnesota, but I became aware that um, many uh, Jewish immigrants after the war um, went there and they, um, they worked as farmers. They were brought in working as farmers. And uh, as a matter of fact, my uncle, um, who was... Uh, happened to be a farmer after the war in Lakewood, New Jersey. He was a chicken farmer. Yeah, there was the whole chicken farming Jewish thing in, in that part of New Jersey. That's right. Yes, yes. So I lived, I lived there for just maybe three years. I was very young, but I just remember going into the pen and, you know, with all the chickens there. And uh, so it was, a, it was a different experience, but... Um, I wanted to explore um, something that most people don't really think about when they think of immigrants coming to this country, because many of them are seen as coming to more urban areas. We will talk much more with Shirley Russick Wachtel. Her book is called A Castle in Brooklyn. It's an engaging, enjoyable, and uh, I think powerful novel. When we come back in a moment here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a fabulous Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina foothills, celebrates a wonderful array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services. Services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675 for more information. Religious school is going for school-aged children and grandchildren. Join us in 2023 for our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation, and teen programs in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Come in person Friday night and Saturday morning. 
You can email me personally, rabbi at beitsimchatusan.org, or join us every Friday night on our Facebook page. Shabbat evening celebration services are at 6.30. Saturday Shabbat morning services are at 10 a.m., all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, and our musical services are in person. And, of course, virtually. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. We have many wonderful classes. You can access those through the website, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Our wonderful religious school is available in person, but in blended format, too. Some students live, some on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha, to come to services, our great religious school, and Torah Tykes program. Bar and Bat Mitzvah, Confirmation, High School Program, Rich Array of Adult Education Academy courses, and of course, all of our services. We have some special ones coming up for the Martin Luther King weekend with a great speaker. Or come on Facebook. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675. That's 276-5675, 520 area code. org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Celebrate your own Judaism in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in Arizona and its exciting beginning years. If you've got a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, kvetch or kvell, email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, streaming us from 2JewishRadio.com, or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store as very popular Jewish podcast, Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, closing in on 200,000 downloads on Podbeam and on Spotify too. Post a rating, review to Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. You know, we haven't played this yet this year, and I was asked to include Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song here on Two Jewish. So, 
Here's the original version. Still really the best of them. Even if a fair number of these famous Jews have moved on to the Olam Haba, as has the Carnegie Deli and, of course, the Seattle Supersonicas. Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. Put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah. So much Hanukkah to celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. Instead of one day of presents, we have eight crazy nights. <laughs> When you feel like the only kid in town without a Christmas tree, here's a list of people who are Jewish, just like you and me. <laughs> David Lee Roth lights the menorah. So do James Conkirk, Douglas, and the late Dinah Shora. Guess who eats together at the Carnegie Deli? Bowser from Shanana and Arthur Fonzarelli. <laughs> Paul Newman's half Jewish, Goldie Hawn's half too. Put them together. What a fine looking Jew. You can spin a dreidel with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, both Jewish. Put on your yarmulke, it's time for Hanukkah. The owner of the Seattle Supersonicas celebrates Hanukkah. O.J. Simpson, not a Jew. <laughs> But guess who is? Hall of Famer Rod Carew. He converted. We got Ann Landers and her sister, dear Abby. Harrison Ford's a quarter Jewish, not too shabby. <laughs> Some people think that Ebenezer Scrooge is. Well, he's not, but guess who is? All three Stooges. Tell your friend Veronica, it's time you celebrate Hanukkah. Oh, bar, get a harmonica on this lovely, lovely Hanukkah. So drink your gin and tonica and smoke your marijuana. If you really, really want to have a happy, 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 happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. That was Sandler's original Hanukkah song, and now it's time for an occasionally recurring feature of Two Jewish, our Serene Zen Judaism segment. Practice loving-kindness with all sentient beings. Still, would it kill you to find a sentient being who is Jewish? 
Yes, that was our Zen Judaism segment at Kohan. Um, Kohan, just for you. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. And uh, happy Hanukkah. And to you. We started talking last week about the, I guess, evolution of the Sephardic world, the Jews who came originally from Spain and Portugal, from the Iberian Peninsula, um, and how that culture spread into southern France, incorporated areas there. Um, let's 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 spread it a little further as we try to delineate what Sephardic really means. Okay. The first thing is I want to correct your sort of tagline to the last session. Okay. When you said we would explore further the Sephardic world and the differences between the Sephardic world and the Ashkenazic world. Because my whole point and the point I want to leave your listeners with above all is that Jews are not merely divided into Sephardim and Ashkenazim. That's a totally misleading and unfair characterization of at least a third of world Jewry who are neither one, even if they may have learned to think of themselves as Sephardic. Okay, why? Because Sephardic comes from Sfarad, which is the Hebrew word for Spain, or by extension, the Iberian Peninsula. And if your family has no ties to that world, if you've never spoken Ladino and your family never lived in Spain or Portugal, then you're not Sephardic. However much other people may say you are, if you're a Yemenite Jew or an Italian Jew or an Iraqi Jew or a Persian Jew. You come from very rich traditions of your own, but those are not Sephardic traditions. It's true that they're not Ashkenazic, right? but concluding that they are therefore Sephardic (laughs) ignores the fact that it's not a binary world. It's a multipolar world. So let's talk first about the Mediterranean because that's where it's the most complicated and the lines blur the most. So in the so-called golden age in Spain, which was roughly the year 900 of the common era to 1350 of the common era, but it was many centuries, a Jewish civilization flourished and a language flourished, which then spread far beyond the Iberian Peninsula. And it spread in several ways. First of all, there were scholars and teachers and rabbis and tradesmen from the Jewish communities in Spain and Portugal, who traveled to France, to Italy, to North Africa, and all the nearby countries, and had exchanges, both commercial and intellectual exchanges. So the language and the customs of those Jews spread, but mostly still in sort of um, neighboring countries. Then, when there was the expulsion from the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, and Jews were ultimately forced to leave or convert or die. Or die, right. The Ottoman Sultan notably said to his prime minister, what a fool the Spanish king is to get rid of the various the very people who made him wealthy. I want you to outfit boats with fine clothes and good food and entice, invite, don't coerce, the Jews of Spain and Portugal to come and settle in our territories. We, they will enrich us prophetically. And so a lot of those Jews settled on the Turkish Aegean coast in places like Izmir and in Greece, particularly in Thessaloniki, and throughout the Balkan Peninsula in places like Sofia and Sarajevo, which are now Bulgaria and um, Bosnia. But they were all part of the Ottoman Empire. And all those Jews spoke Ladino for centuries. Let's get to the non 
Sephardic, non-Ashkenazic, non-Ladino-speaking Jewish communities that are very important next week. Sounds like a plan. It'll actually be, I think, technically next secular year. Oh, cool. Okay. Thanks, Tom. We'll talk then. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie New, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Married for 35 years, Abe takes a look at his wife, Rachel, one day and says, Honey, 35 years ago, we had a cheap apartment, a cheap car, slept on a sofa bed and watched a little black and white TV. But I got to sleep every night with a hot 25-year-old blonde. Now we have a huge house, nice cars, a big fancy bed, and a giant flat screen TV. But I'm sleeping with a 60-year-old woman. It seems to me you are not holding up your side of things. Rachel's a very reasonable woman. She tells Abe, go out and find a hot 25-year-old blonde, and I will make sure that you will once again be living in a cheap apartment, driving a cheap car, and sleeping on a sofa bed. That was the Old Jewish Joke of the Week, special feature of Too Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. This week's portion of Vayigash begins with the climax of the great Joseph story, which will fill the final sections of the book of Genesis. Joseph is the powerful ruler of Egypt, richest country of the ancient world. His miraculous ascent from slavery and prison to the heights of political power is the stuff that dreams are made of. He is the master of all he surveys, subservient only to a pharaoh who trusts him completely. Joseph is handsome, rich, hugely powerful, a wife and two fine sons, completely assimilated into Egypt's elegant culture, and he is still comparatively young. The world sits at his manicured feet. But wait, there's more. For into this idyllic scene blunder Joseph's early tormentors, the very half-brothers who taunted him and beat him up. These are the conniving thugs who stripped him and tossed him into a pit in the earth and sat down to eat lunch, debating in his hearing whether to kill him or simply abandon him to thirst and starvation, and then instead sold him into slavery in a foreign land. Now, some twenty years later, he has had the opportunity to return the favor, to exact at least a psychological vengeance on these half-brothers. After a sequence of twists and turns, Joseph has manipulated them into a state of confusion and terror. Unman these arrogant, unruly, rural ruffians into fearful submission. Joseph has had his dish of revenge served cold and seems to have enjoyed it. But then something changes in Joseph. Perhaps he simply tires of psychologically torturing his half-brothers. Perhaps it is that he has finally seen his full brother Benjamin again, only living reminder of his dead mother, Rachel. Perhaps it is that the fullest measure of revenge is magnanimity. And maybe it's simply that Joseph's exceptional ability to act pragmatically exerts itself, and he has to end the cat-and-mouse game one way or another. Or... 
Perhaps it's the stirring confessional speech his powerful half-brother Judah delivers, which brings Joseph to a new place. Near the beginning of Ayigash, in the dramatic high point of this Joseph story, he chooses to reunite with his family. Joseph sends out his advisors, the counselors and courtiers. He cries out in a voice loud enough to be heard by all. He tells the brothers, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. Weeping now, he embraces his brother Benjamin, asking, Is my father still alive? One can imagine the shock of that moment even now, 3,600 years after the events. The brothers may have had an inkling that he was indeed Joseph. It's implied in the text of the story. But the full revelation had to be stunning nonetheless. Their worst fears are realized. They have been and are now completely in the power of a despised half-brother they comprehensively wronged. What will happen now? Joseph moves immediately to reassure them and relieve their fears, while he gently reminds them that he, Joseph, is the authority now. Everyone will move down to Egypt and live in land he provides. Jacob, his father, comes down to Egypt too. The family is reassembled, but in a very different configuration, for the unquestioned patriarch now is Joseph. And the great story will continue in a new land and in a new direction. There's something about this story that compels us to examine our assumptions about how things work in our world. Unpredictable things do occur. What we expect is often not what happens. Fate plays a role. And in the best of circumstances, and with God's help, our own actions, like Joseph's, may begin with base motivation and yet still rise to a level of magnanimity and grace. When we come back on to Jewish, our guest this morning, Shirley Russick Wachtel, will tell us how she decided to set her new novel, A Castle in Brooklyn, partially on a farm not in Brooklyn, but in Minnesota. Find out when we return in a moment here on To Jewish. We continue with our To Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. During a press conference in Washington last week with Ukraine's Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky, U.S. President Joe Biden brought up the Hanukkah story. He compared Ukraine's struggle against Russia to the Maccabees uprising. Tonight is the fourth night of Hanukkah, Biden said, standing next to Zelensky, who came on a last-minute visit to D.C. to speak to Congress and appeal for the approval of more assistance for Ukraine. It was Zelensky's first foreign trip since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in February. A time when Jewish people around the world, President Zelensky and many families among them, honor the timeless miracle of a small band of warriors fighting for the values and their freedom against a much larger foe and how they endured and how they overcame, Biden said. How the flame of faith with only enough oil for one day burned brightly for eight days. The story of survival and resilience reminds us on the coldest day of the year that light will always prevail over darkness. It was a message Zelensky himself struck when he spoke to Ukrainians just before the start of Hanukkah. Congratulations to the Jewish community of Ukraine and all the Jews of the world on Hanukkah. Those who were outnumbered defeated those who outnumbered them. Light defeated darkness. It will be the same this time, he said, at the end of a longer video update about the status of the war. 
He finished in Hebrew, Chag Chanukah Sameach. President Biden's comments echoed a comparison between Zelensky and Judah Maccabee, the hero of the Hanukkah story, of course, which emerged early on in Ukraine's defensive war. Biden, along with Democrats in Congress and a number of Senate Republicans, want to pass a $1.7 trillion spending bill before Congress adjourns at the end of the year. They fear that once Republicans assume leadership of the U.S. House, they will stymie spending. Among the expenditures opposed by House Republicans is $45 billion, military aid primarily earmarked for Ukraine. The $1.7 trillion package unveiled this week includes $3.8 billion in defense assistance for Israel, $305 million for security grants for nonprofits, including synagogues, an increase from $180 million. Jewish groups lobbied for the increase in nonprofit assistance, saying it was needed in the wake of an increase in violent anti-Semitic attacks. The Biden administration has had a number of Hanukkah celebrations this year, using them as a platform to denounce anti-Semitism. Serious questions emerged in the last week about recently elected New York Congressman George Santos, who claims to be Jewish on his mother's side and a practicing Catholic through his father. During his successful campaign for Congress, he often cited his family's history, fleeing anti-Semitic persecution in Ukraine before moving first to Belgium and then to Brazil. But apparently, that wasn't true. His campaign biography begins, George's grandparents fled Jewish persecution in Ukraine, settled in Belgium, and again fled persecution during World War II. They were able to settle in Brazil, where his mother was born. Of course, many European Jews fled to South America during the lead-up to the Holocaust, but Santos's mother, Fatima de Volder, died in 2016 in New York. Nothing in her obituary indicates any Jewish background. Fatima, of course, is one of the Roman Catholic names in Portugal for the Virgin Mary. De Volder is Flemish Dutch. Flemish people are also overwhelmingly Catholic. Matt Brooks, the Republican Jewish Committee's CEO, said about Santos, I asked him, he said he's Jewish. Santos was a featured speaker last month at the Republican Jewish Committee's annual Las Vegas event. He was billed as one of just two freshman Jewish Republicans in Congress, along with Ohio's Max Miller. Santos campaigned heavily among Orthodox Jews in New York's 3rd District, encompassing parts of northern Long Island and Queens. It was an honor to address fellow members of the Jewish community in New York 3, he tweeted November 3rd after attending a Chabad event, also attended by Israeli Ashkenazi Chief Rabbi David Lau. At a recent Hanukkah event, Santos joined Lee Zeldin, the outgoing New York Jewish congressman who had gained popularity among New York's politically conservative Orthodox Jewish voters. Santos's claims about his religious and ethnic origins are minor compared to other revelations that have emerged. There are, for example, no records of George Santos attending the institutes of higher learning he claims to have gotten degrees from, or of working at the financial brokerages he claims employed him. A charitable institution he started shows no evidence of being actually charitable. Santos repeatedly identified with the far right, but then attempted to scrub those expressions from his social media. In addition, Santos faces outstanding charges in Brazil for stealing a checkbook from a man in the care of his mother, a nurse, and then cashing checks. He has twice been evicted. His financial reporting as a candidate misses required information omissions that could bring legal 
prosecution. When reporters sought Congressman Santos out at the address where he is registered to vote, the person there said she did not know him. My, we live in interesting times. Candidates now apparently claim to be Jewish who aren't. That's a switch, isn't it? In sports, Matt Ishby, a billionaire mortgage lender who in high school was named Jewish Athlete of the Year by his hometown Jewish newspaper, reportedly has reached a $4 billion agreement to purchase the NBA's Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury. Ishbia is buying the teams from Robert Sarver, who cited his own Jewish identity when he announced that he would sell the basketball teams he has owned since 2004. Sarver, a real estate businessman with a net worth of about a billion dollars, announced the sale after facing a suspension and $10 million fine as a result of an investigation that found a pattern of inappropriate and abusive behavior, including racist remarks and sexual harassment towards employees. As a man of faith, I believe in atonement and the path to forgiveness, Sarver said at the time, that was just before the High Holy Days, when tshuva, of course, is a central theme. The Tucson native... Sarver is a member of the Reform Synagogue Temple High in Phoenix. In the interest of full disclosure, I know Robert Sarver slightly through his Tucson family. Matt Ishpia, president and CEO of Michigan-based United Wholesale Mortgage, has a net worth of $5.6 billion. His firm is the largest wholesale mortgage lender in the U.S. Ishpia has been pursuing NBA and NFL teams in recent years, and has a relationship with NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, who is also Jewish, of course. The sale will become final pending approval from the NBA's Board of Governors. That $4 billion price tag for the Suns and Mercury is the most expensive in basketball history, second highest for a North American sports franchise, behind only the $4.65 billion sale of the NFL's Denver Broncos back in June. At 42 years old, Ishbia will become the NBA's youngest team owner. Ishbia was a walk-on basketball player at Michigan State. He played in three Final Fours and won a national championship in 2000. His $32 million gift to his alma mater in 2021 was the largest individual donation in Michigan State's history. Ishbia also played for Detroit's youth Maccabi team at 13 years old. Appropriate for Hanukkah to talk about that. And as a senior in high school, he was named Jewish Athlete of the Year by the Detroit Jewish News. Ishbia is a member of the Michigan Jewish Sports Foundation's Board of Governors. Justin Ishbia, his brother, will make a sizable investment and serve as the team's alternate governor. Justin Ishbia was one of the most giving Jews in the most recent political campaign cycle. Both brothers have given widely, both to Democrats and Republicans. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning, Shirley Rusquactel, is the author of her debut novel, A Castle in Brooklyn, which is set in uh, Minnesota and Brooklyn and explores um, character, responses to tragedy. Um, would you call this a, a deeply Jewish book, a moderately Jewish book, if you had to characterize it? Oh, um, I would say moderately Jewish. I think um, Jewish in the sense that um, Jacob is haunted by his experiences during the Holocaust, 
And as a matter of fact, I, I know a great deal about that because both of my parents were survivors. Um, so, so in that sense, yes. But I think also, on the other hand, it explores the life of immigrants, anybody really who has a dream to set up a home and have a new life. So in that sense, I think it's a book that um, can appeal to all groups. There's um, a a lot about, of course, Brooklyn, but there's a lot about anti-Semitism here and that the recollections of the destruction of their life in Europe, uh, of the kind of buildup to the Holocaust and the Holocaust itself. Um, how much of this came from your parents' own stories? Uh, quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, my, uh, my parents, um, they had, my father was the only survivor of his family, um, similar to my character, Jacob. And um, he, uh, he was in the Ludge Ghetto, and he was a runner for the black market there. And he um, was, when the, the ghetto was dispersed, he uh, had, uh, was assigned to uh, go to Auschwitz, and um, he was assigned to the line for death, for the gas. Um, he kind of knew that that wasn't the line he wanted to be on, and in a split second, he ran to the line for the workers. And in doing so, he, you know, saved his life. Uh, but also, you know, we, I would not be here for, if not for that decision, and neither would my children and my grandchildren. Sure. Um, and my mother worked, uh, she, she worked in uh, Greenberg, as a finisher, she sewed uh, buttons on the Nazi uniforms, and um, she actually um, was saved by one of the German guards who took a liking to her, to, who took her as her daughter. And she, um, it, after the war, she she went on to Bergen-Belsen, and uh, it was just she and two brothers survived out of um, eight in the family. So um, their lives uh, and their life trying to make it in this country certainly impact the things that I write. And I, I try to incorporate some of that in all of my writing. And certainly I think the experience of the Holocaust was something that um, haunted Jacob, um, as well as as well as Zalman, in trying to build his new life in America. In a way, uh, as a second generation survivor, which would be you, right? Um, you have a, a clear perspective on the kinds of traumas that were overcome and that you express in your book in kind of re-embracing life. Um, but it's, but it's, it's not all easy, right? It's not, oh, they came out of this and bounced back and look at this triumph of the human spirit. It's obviously much more complicated than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, my father, um, uh, did speak a great deal about, um, his experiences during the war. Um, but I had, um, an uncle who was very, um, usually quiet about it in the same way that Jacob is portrayed. 
and it's not easy. Um, you know, um, people, um, Jews coming to this country after the war were considered greenhorns, and they were shunned, and uh, it, it just was uh, a very difficult path for them. And I admire so much the resilience of these individuals. For my father, it was owning a business. It wasn't about a house. And of course, for Jacob, it was about the house. And just to kind of resume life from the ashes, I think is, is something that I wanted to portray. The notion of um, the house itself becomes kind of I mean, this castle in Brooklyn, right? It becomes really central in the book. Tell us about that transition. Um, well, my original thought in writing the book uh, was to portray the life of the house and how the house is the reflection of who we are as individuals. Um, and, you know, Jacob and I think the house are synonymous. The house represents his dreams, his dreams for a new life, but one that is stable, where he has his own family, where he can finally relinquish the traumas of the past. Um, as, as the novel goes on, it, we see it comes to represent not only his dream, but uh, the dreams of uh, Esther and certainly Zalman, who really does become a part of the family, as well as those who move into the home in later years who are, who are quite, you know, different from uh, the original builder. Um, you know, we see Riku, who was in a Japanese internment camp, and what this house represents to him. So I, I did, I, the house, I think, is actually the central figure in the book. That's, it's so interesting to think about that because, of course, uh, I mean, this is, takes place over about, what, 60 years or so, the story, maybe a little more. Um, I mean, there's flashbacks earlier still. Do you, um, um, I, I don't know, I, people seem more vital than houses to be, but in a way it comes out the other way. Yeah, uh, I mean, the house is, at first it's a dream, um, but then it, it's true, it becomes larger than life, um, almost. And, um, you know, as we see, you know, I'm not going to give away the end of the novel. No, but please don't. certainly <laughs> see it come full circle, I believe. In um, talking about the characters, you, you know, they're all, uh, you know, in complicated circumstances. Were there, are there some you like better than others? Well, um, <laughs> I certainly, I do like Jacob. Um, he's a difficult character um, because he's, he keeps so much hidden and he's, He's very quick to anger. Um, I, uh, there, there are certain aspects of his character that remind me of my own father, who um, at times could be just like that. Um, certainly Esther is a character that I have, that, you know, as one writes, uh, the characters are not real people, but they do take a life on their own. And, they, and as I'm writing it, it sends, the book sends me in different directions. And Esther, I do admire her because we see her at first 
taking on a role that feels uncomfortable to her just to be, you know, a housewife. And I'm not trying to demean housewives in any way, but she was a woman that was very talented in business and she wanted more. And as the years go on, we see her achieving that. And so, you know, I do have a great um, admiration for her. She kind of was a feminist before the term was, was coined, I believe. Do you see yourself um, more closely related to her or to uh, other characters in the book? I do believe that I'm most closely related to Esther because there are some scenes, you know, I remember in the 70s, I'm a, I'm a college professor and uh, I taught uh, high school before that. So I used some of my memories in creating that character, and I remember the, you know, the gasoline crisis and, you know, waiting on long lines, and I incorporated that in the book. And so um, she's someone that I, I feel that I can very much relate to. What's, what was the, I guess, most surprising thing for you in completing A Castle in Brooklyn as you wrote it? Um, I think when um, I, I was developing the plot, and as I said, you know, the writing takes me places. I don't think of things ahead of time, but how characters' lives are really, you know, very similar and people, as I mentioned, the character of Riku, who, you know, is it certainly a different culture mm-hmm. from the ones that, uh, from Esther and, um, and uh, Jacob, where they came from and Zalman came from. And yet how much we are all alike at the end of the day. We all have turmoil. We all have... Um, issues in our lives, and yet we all essentially strive for the same things. And I think, you know, that that made writing the book made me more aware of that. I was thinking about the level of detail that you include within each era. You live these. Did you have to do research to remember what people wore or their hairstyles? Um, yes. I, you know, I can, a lot of it is, was my own memories. Um, because, you know, what my mother looked like, what my father looked like, um, the, the, the newspapers they read, the TV shows they watched. And, of course, you know, there were some of the details that um, I had to get right, what movie was popular at a certain period. But it was doing the research was uh, very enlightening for me, too, even though I did live a number of those years. I was born after the war, of course, but um, I enjoyed, you know, going back to that time and that time and place and all of that. One particular scene that I I enjoyed writing was the one where um, Jacob is taking classes to learn English because my father did just that and he had his 
old notebooks at home when he was, and he would write about his young daughter. And so that was, <laughs> you know, an endearing uh, scene for me. By the way, it's a, it's a, I don't know how to describe this properly. I was going to say it's a comfortable book to read, right? Um, even the difficult stories and the painful memories are expressed with a certain amount of love. Um, to, is that one of your considerations when you write? Yes, yes. Um, I write what I know. I write from my heart. Um, and and I do want people very much to relate to my books, to see themselves in these characters. And, and so that's, you know, that's a very gratifying experience for me, you know, and I'm going to come back to this as a child of survivors, you know, um, you think about why, why did my parents survive and when so many did not and, and knowing that I feel, and I know my brother feels the same way and even my children do that we have to do the best we can in this life, that our, our being here has to have some meaning. And for me, that's, that's my work. That's my writing. I want to thank Shirley Russick-Wachtel for a great visit here on Two Jewish. The book is called A Castle in Brooklyn. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you, to find out more about the book, and to get the book? Sure. Um, ShirleyWachtel.com is my website. And um, it's, uh, you can just get it on Amazon, and uh, it's published by Little A. And so you'll be able to find it quite easily. Thank you so much, Shirley. Thank you very much. When we come back on 2Jewish, we'll hear back next week's guest, get a final musical playout. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week, our special secular New Year's edition of Two Jewish, including the Jewish Year in Review. Well, secular year. Don't forget, join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night for services in Onig Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 2, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush. Services are live in person and on our Facebook page. Classes are on Zoom. Our play out this morning comes for this seventh day of Hanukkah and the eighth and final night of Hanukkah, 5783 tonight. It's Naomi Lesses, Eight Nights. My friends, have a Chag Chanukah Sameach, a happy and wonderful conclusion to this great holiday of lights, and have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week. And in this final week of 2022, a week we pray profoundly of peace. Sponsored by Two Jewish Radio Programs, Tucson, Arizona.